Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Burr. Tonight on Indigenous Remembrance Day and ahead of November the 11th, we hear about a new project from the Canadian War Museum that looks not at experiences of veterans and their families during war, but what life was like afterwards, both positive and negative. There are reports that Meta, owners of Facebook and Instagram, are about to cut a record amount of their 87,000-strong workforce. Coming on the heels of similar cutbacks at Twitter and other tech companies, we find out what's behind the sudden downturn. What is the most memorable weather event that you've lived through? Chris St. Clair's list is very long, and the former Weather Channel host has compiled his list in a new book called Weather Permitting. He joins us to talk about it. But first, the all-important U.S. midterms will determine who will control Congress for the next two years, the last two of President Biden's first term. Will Republicans take advantage of anger over high inflation in the economy, or will extreme candidates cost them races they should have won? First, let's head to the U.S. Vote counting is underway in many states at this hour uh, in the midterm elections tonight of great consequence, of course, that will help determine uh, the nation's path on a bunch of issues such as economic stability, reproductive rights, of course, post Roe v. Wade, and uh, public safety has been a big issue as well. And democracy is on the ballot this year, uh, according to the Democrats. But, uh, you know, they, they've made that a central part of their campaign, that they will protect democracy. All 435 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives are up for grabs, as are 35 U.S. Senate seats and 36 governorships. Um, and the balance, the balance of who is in the sort of who will control Congress is at play here. Uh, polls are closing in several Western states right now or just have or are about to, although there are some delays in Nevada, and that's a very consequential battle going on there. But Utah, Montana, Iowa, uh, an hour to go in Washington, Oregon, California, and Idaho. So we'll cover those for you as the show goes on. Again, the prize would be for the Republicans to win uh, both the House of Representatives and the Senate, and that would have a major impact on the final two years of President Biden's first term. Anger, apparently, is the most commonly word heard word in exit polling as Americans cast their ballots today. Dissatisfaction or anger with the direction of the country is how 73% of voters said they felt in a preliminary exit poll. 46% say their personal finances are worse than they were two years ago. 32% of voters say inflation's their top issue, while 27% said it's abortion. A general alarm being sounded by 70% of voters who say democracy is threatened, with roughly equal percentages of Republicans, Democrats, and independents saying that is the case. Brian Clark, ABC News. Well, joining me now with more on this is Charles Bierbauer. He's a distinguished professor and dean emeritus at the College of Information and Communication at the University of South Carolina. He's also a longtime correspondent, including a longtime White House uh, correspondent. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Happy to be with you. Do you still get the? Uh, do you still feel the buzz on nights like tonight from all your time covering U.S. politics when these sorts of events go down? Everyone feels the buzz on a night like this, and and it's and it's a buzz of uncertainty. It's a buzz of indecision, and and as always, it's the too early to call that uh, that the networks keep throwing up there, and that, that leaves you wondering how is this going to turn out. And at this point, quite frankly, it's still too early to call. It's too. I mean, there have been uh, really there are only twenty eight seats. I guess there aren't that many races that are actually up in the air. Most of most of them seem not that not that they're a foregone conclusion, but I guess they figured out there aren't that many seats that are really competitive. Um, and, but and, we've seen and a that's few. Much the yeah. case, yes. Yeah, we've seen a few um, developments so far tonight, though that are that are of interest. 
Well, there are certain, there, there are always things that are of interest, but but again, you wonder how, for example, is the Senate race in Georgia going to turn out? It's been right. ebbing back and forth between Senator uh, Warnock and the the challenger Herschel Walker. How is the New York State governorship going to turn out? How are various Senate races? Uh, Nevada has just, I think, the polls have just closed or are closing out there. Uh, there are a lot of close races. There's no question about that. For the most part, incumbents are, are safe or relatively safe, but it's the open seats and the seats that are being challenged, and those are enough to, to change the balance in both the House and the Senate. Yeah. How about your home state of, of Pennsylvania? That's been an interesting one to watch. Well, that's my home state is Pennsylvania. I live in North Carolina, which is also an interesting state to watch. There's a Senate race that is now still up in the air here. Um, Pennsylvania, if if I were guessing at this point, the governorship seems to be moving very safely towards the Democrats. And at this point, always the the caveat, uh, it would appear that that Dr. Oz uh, can probably go back to New Jersey. (laughs) <laughs> that was one of the. That's been one of the most interesting uh, battles, of course, between uh, between Fetterman and Oz, because it's been a real, a real nasty one. But if you look at the math, uh, the Democrats don't actually have to. They they don't have to hold on to that. They need to hold on to a few and win one, I guess, or take a few. But really, it's just a balance of one for the for the Republicans. So every single one of these is is kind of a well, not to overstate it, but these are some these are all very seriously important races. Every Senate race is is absolutely that critical. Uh, you, if you win one, you uh, or lose one. If you lose one, you have to win one somewhere else, and that's why Pennsylvania, because it's it's a seat that's being vacated uh, is is important. Uh, my sense would be if Fetterman had not had uh, heart troubles uh, several months ago, this would not have been as close a race as it has become. Uh, uh, Dr. Oz suffers greatly because he is seen as the carpetbagger from across the Delaware River. And Pennsylvania and New Jersey really think that the Delaware River is the eastern uh, border of the United States, not not the Atlantic Ocean. It's, uh, yeah. And of course, Oprah Winfrey came out against her old uh, TV buddy uh, this week she as well, did. which I gather had, a, I gather had a bit of an impact. You never know what happens in politics. In the grander scheme of things, do you sense the tension over, over you know, there's, of course, on this side of the border where there really is a, and it, the border really does end up in, uh, up around, you know, the Niagara River and so on. Um, there's been a real sense that, that with the Republican Party, with just the sheer number of election deniers that have been running and successfully uh, in this election, that there's, there's, that there's quite a bit at stake here if the Republicans do, in fact, win. The tone could be very, the tone tonight could be very different depending on how it turns out. Well, the tone is going to be harsh for the next two years, largely depending on what Donald Trump decides to do. And everything he is saying right now suggests that he wants to run again. Uh, and and wh- whether that's bluster, whether that's uh, self-aggrandizement, whether that's uh, his inability to concede anything, but it's still hanging out there that, that if Republicans do well in these midterm elections, that would be more encouraging for him. There's a, there's a, a seeming rift 
developing between Trump and and Governor DeSantis in Florida that is worth keeping an eye on as we go forward. But the essential thing coming out of these midterms is whether the Republicans or the Democrats control Congress, keeping in mind that even if the Republicans do take over the House, which is probably the more likely, and even the Senate, that they would be dealing with a presidential veto that uh, the Republicans could not overcome. So Biden still has uh, uh, the, the the ace in the hole, I don't want to call it the Trump card, uh, <laughs> going forward over the next two years. You covered politics for, for a long time. You covered the Supreme Court. You covered Washington. You covered yeah. the White House. How different does it look? How different does it feel today than it did? Because from an outsider's perspective, it looks very different. It's it's mean. It's ornery. It's antagonistic. Uh, the, the 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 language is horrendous. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, not to say that politics hasn't always been a nasty game. And if you if you go back, Nixon played it roughly. Lyndon Johnson played it roughly. Uh, Kennedy may be much. Uh, beloved, but he played politics as well. I mean, that's part of the game in this country. I suspect it is in Canada, too, and in and in a lot of other places. But this has been over the last approximately six years, but not solely the last six years, as mean, as nasty, as as contentious, uh, with with almost no sense of uh, willingness to find middle ground. I used to do a, a, a talk show for 10 years at CNN, and, and you would bring on people as diametrically opposed as, let's say, Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch, a Democrat and a Republican, and they would fight with each other for the half-hour interview, and then they'd say something like, tennis at three, drinks at five. That doesn't seem to exist in Washington anymore. Uh, I know you were based in in Moscow as well back in the day, speaking of places that have changed a lot over the years. Um, will this election or how the outcome of this election, because we've been hearing a lot from the Republicans about Ukraine, will it have any impact, do you think, on the war? Well, that's a good question, and I'm not sure what the answer is. When I was in Moscow, it was back in the good old, bad old days of the Cold War, back in, back in the late 70s. I, I spent a lot of time in in Eastern Europe and a lot of time studying that. But the, the Ukraine war is is one that is is almost a, you know, harkens back to the to the Cold War days. Uh, the, the Putin administration is, is kind of a Stalin Khrushchev Brezhnev uh, revisited uh, orientation. There are Republicans now who are saying, well, if we win and take control, not a dollar more for Ukraine. That's pretty short-sighted in terms of what uh, the balance of interests are between the United States uh, and and Russia uh, these days. And quite frankly, those uh, occasional Republicans who are making those kinds of statements, I'm not sure that that represents uh, the totality of how Republicans would feel. An awful lot of Republican office holders, uh, like me, grew up during the Cold War days and and cannot divorce themselves, nor should they necessarily, from the idea 
that Vladimir Putin is is a revisitation of the worst elements of the Cold War. Yeah, indeed. I guess just I, I think it was a lot of uh, Canadians watching on, looking to think what what it was there really. You know, certainly through Fox News and so on. There's been a, a narrative that uh, that in some ways the war in Ukraine mightn't be worth uh, investing too much money. And what's in it for us would be sort of the. Uh, the line that we've been hearing. So it's interesting to hear what, what I mean, clearly President Biden still has uh, the presidential veto, but, you know, there could be pressure from from within Congress if it changes hands uh, to shift gears a bit. What about for other allies? Um, do you sense any changes in just the way that, uh, that, for instance, countries like Canada could be treated, just the way that America views the world if uh, Republicans control Congress? Lar- largely relationships start at at the top. And so it's it's the relationship between President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau or the relationship between the, the president here. And bear in mind that an awful lot is changing in Europe these days. Um, the, the UK, Great Britain has, has a new prime minister. Uh, <laughs> Germany has a relatively new chancellor. And Benjamin Netanyahu is apparently coming back into Israel. So so in some cases, these will be new relationships, and in other cases, they will be revisiting uh, where we were once upon a time. And that's going to be tricky, but Congress doesn't set that standard nearly as much as as uh, you know, the, the White House and and uh, what's happening in Ottawa and what's happening at Number Ten in London, that's where where those things start to get set. So you'll be, I guess it'll be a late night for you. Will you be up up watching? Or you're just going to wait and wait and watch it and find out what happened in the well, morning. Well, I'm I, I'm going to watch for a while, but some of these states are not going to be decided very early. Take Pennsylvania for example. Pennsylvania law prohibits them, if I understand this correctly, from even beginning to count the absentee ballots or the mail-in ballots, which are substantial, before the polls close today. Other states are different. Some states uh, could begin counting the absentee or or mail-in ballots ahead of time. So in a state like Pennsylvania, which is going to have a very close race uh, for the Senate seat, we may not know for, for some time. We may not know about Arizona for some time. We may not know about some of the congressional races, although probably we'll know more of those and fewer of the of the really close Senate races. Uh, people are people are saying days and maybe even weeks. Uh, it's not going to be on your headline uh, news tomorrow morning. Oh well, hold on to your seat, Charles Brubauer. Thanks so much. Happy to be with you. Thank you. Today is Indigenous Remembrance Day, and we are, of course, making our way towards November the 11th. So we've been spending this week looking at how different people and organizations across the country are marking the day this year and some of the issues facing veterans and their families that deserve more attention. That brings me to new research uh, being carried out by the Canadian War Museum that, interestingly enough, looks not at what happens during war itself, for which it is well documented, but what takes place after it's called In Their Own Voices. It's an oral history project. So far, it features about 120 veterans and family members. And it looks at what life was like for them after war, after military service, both positive and negative. 
Uh, Jonathan Reed, whose father, John Reed, was a prisoner of war held by the Japanese during the Second World War in Hong Kong, says he decided to be interviewed for the project because of his own journey in trying to understand a father who died in 1979 at the age of 65. He said it was an incredibly difficult process, that he was a man that he was distant and that he didn't know exactly how to relate to him. So got involved in this project to learn that aspect of things, to talk about it, in other words, about a father who died all the way back in 1979, so 43 years ago now, but still struggling to understand the impact that war had on him and the family. Veterans Experience and Story and Michael Petru is leading the In Their Own Voices project for the Canadian War Museum. He's also a former journalist and war correspondent, and he joins me now from Ottawa. Thanks for your time. What about the, these stories did you feel needed to be told that hadn't been told yet? Well, a couple of things. I mean, I think one of the main aspects that haven't been told before is we often think about war as ending when the war does and a lot of oral histories that we've done in the past have you know focused on the wartime experience of those who are affected by war or involved in it civilians and soldiers but i mean this soldier this project is a little bit different because we are trying to understand the the enduring impact that war has the echoes of war um, they can cascade through veterans' lives and, and, and also through the lives of their families. So, I mean, certainly we do talk about the wartime experiences of the people we're interviewing. Um, and for some of the interviewees, it's it's this is a wonderful opportunity that I think that, you know, historians will be able to mine decades in, in the future. Um, I interviewed a, a Second World War veteran the other day who was a, who was a mine-clearing diver. So after the... Uh, the Allies landed at D-Day and they started to liberate the Channel ports. His job was to put on the suit and make sure the uh, the docks were safe from mines. Well, there was you know a small number of people that did that. So to have a chance to interview an individual like that, I think, is very valuable. But our main focus is okay. The war is over. You know, how did it change your life? You know what what are you going to do with the rest of your life? How did those four years and all the sacrifices and losses but also what you what you learned and how is that going to change you know the next 10 50 you know 80 years of of life to come so that's the one thing that i think is different and then the other thing that i think makes this project a little bit different is we're also speaking to family members because i think we're coming to understand that sometimes these impacts of of war and military service don't end with the veteran they have an effect on the children and the spouses of veterans as well. So that's those are the two, I think, unique things about the project. It's it's a focus on the post-war, on that transition and becoming a civilian again, and it's expanding our net to also look at uh, the loved ones of veterans to try to understand how their lives were changed as well. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting that you bring that up because having covered anniversaries of, of major battles and and you know Remembrance Day and all those things often. The impact of after the war is something that you talk about after the interview is done with one of their children, for instance, or even them. But you don't often make it the focus of your story. So it's interesting that that you would take it that way. What did you learn? I mean, you've done a lot of you've done a lot of the fast history, the reporting on, you know, the events themselves. What do you feel like you've been able to bring out of a lot of these interviews when it comes to understanding the impacts of war and of service once it's done? Well, I think it's given me a deeper deeper appreciation for how much war and military service shapes the lives of veterans but but also how much those veterans you know have shaped canada 
I mean, I think we often, again, we often kind of hive off military history and, 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 you know, we'll talk about the battles. We don't necessarily talk about the social changes that you know, those veterans, you know, affect on Canada when they come back. And we see this all around us in Canada, everything from, you know, the, the, the suburbs that, you know, extend out from a lot of the major cities in Canada. A lot of that is the result of veterans housing, um, the changing role of, of women in society. You know, that, that stems in many ways from different roles that women uh, took on during, uh, during conflicts, uh, changing roles of uh, some ethnic minorities within Canada as well are, are affected by their own service. They've spoken with a, a handful of uh, Chinese Canadian veterans of the second world war and, and their, their relatives to give one example. And they say, look, you know, we, we served in part to, to prove our loyalty and to, you know, further our own political emancipation. So I think how far reaching, I think the, the, experience of, of of military service in a war can be again on the, on the lives of the individuals who took part but also on broader society and i guess the other thing that i'm that i'm learning is and we're still in the middle of it and we're learning i learn new things with every interview i i i do but i'm beginning to think that there are you know certain shared uh experiences i suppose or shared outlooks that, that result from having served a lot of veterans, when I ask them what they miss about military service, will talk about similar things. They miss the sense of mission, the camaraderie, but I think there's also uh, the shared experience of loss in some in some cases. I remember uh, interviewing one veteran who described a dinner party, and he was a veteran of Afghanistan, and uh, a relative uh, brought up one of his uh, his fellow soldiers who had killed who was killed. And uh, the veteran broke down. This was a difficult memory, and he left the he left the dinner table. And that was a larger family get together. And uh, his grandfather uh, followed him into the hallway, and uh, you know, put a didn't say much, just you know, put his arm on his grandson's shoulder and said, "I understand." Now his grandfather had served in the Second World War. They were separated by their wartime experiences were separated by sixty sixty five years, but they were able to connect because they both understood something very intimate and very profound about losing somebody in, in, in combat that the other, the, the others at the table uh, could not share in that experience. And I guess that the, the twist or even to make, I think to underline that point, the grandfather had served on the, the German side in the second world war. Um, you know, as the grandson put it, he's fought for a cause that the grandson found abhorrent um, but that common experience of, 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 of loss uh, enabled them to forge this connection, again, separated by you know, different conflicts, different sides of the conflict by, by you know, decades and decades. And I think that speaks to the, uh, uh, again, the, 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 the shared experiences that veterans sometimes, sometimes have. Uh, today is Indigenous uh, Remembrance Day. I, I, I gather our definition of what war looked like and what its after effects have been has changed a lot that we're including a lot more of the stories that weren't often enough told in the past have you looked into that we have and that's certainly one of our priorities is is to is to amplify and 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 find some of these perhaps previously marginalized voices um uh lgbtq vets uh ethnic minorities indigenous veterans as well we have a lot more uh, work to do but we we've interviewed about uh, 12 uh, veterans so far that um, 
that identify as Indigenous uh, First Nations or Métis. Um, and and you're you're absolutely right. There's again, there are, there are common experiences, and there are, there are, there are different tensions and themes. The way discrimination within the military might compare with discrimination in broader Canadian society is something that has come up. Um, uh, I remember interviewing a, a, a black vet from he served in the 1990s to the 2010s, if I recall correctly. And uh, he found that the the discrimination within the military was 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 far far less than in broader Canadian society, and that's that's something that we're we're looking into. Um, I had a an, a really uh, I think enlightening interview with uh, Frank Mortsugu. He was a uh, he served in the Second World War, uh, but his family was also he and his family were also uh, interned. Uh, because they were Japanese Canadian and uh, forced to relocate to Ontario, and he described having a conversation with his own father um, about why he wanted to enlist uh, towards the end of the war, and he said it was in part again to prove that the family was loyal to Canada. Um, and 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 Frank talked about how his service and the service of other Japanese Canadians uh, during the Second World War was an asset when they then tried to campaign for redress and apology for their internment. Uh, I had a, a recent interview with uh, Donald Julian, a Mi'kmaq veteran uh, in Nova Scotia. And it was interesting because, of course, we talked about, the, you know, the complicated relationship between the Canadian government and Indigenous people in Canada. And uh, and everyone has different opinions. But it was interesting to hear, you know, Donald uh, talk about his pride in having met the Queen and talked to her in detail. And... Uh, Donald, uh, Dr. Julian, he's a scholar as well who's researched uh, Mi'kmaq military history. Um, you know, he, for him, he saw serving in Canada as very much in keeping with his own uh, Indigenous traditions and the obligations and and, and, and promises that uh, the Mi'kmaq nation made to serve and protect the British and, and now the Canadian crown. So he rooted his own decision to, to serve and his pride in having served you know, very much in Indigenous history and in this history of relations between the, uh, uh, the Canadian First Nations and the First Nations in Canada and uh, and the Crown, the British and now and now Canadian Crown. So, uh, so those those experiences are, are 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 unique and fascinating, and it's been a real it's been a real pleasure to uh, to dig into them, and I'm 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 looking forward to doing it more. Well, Michael, thank you so much for sharing uh, what you've learned through this project. We look forward to seeing uh, the results of it as well as you continue. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Ben. Thank you for having me. Let's head to Silicon Valley now because, um, well, we'll head to the tech world in general. Meta, the parent company of Facebook, according to the Wall Street Journal today, is set to begin mass layoffs tomorrow in what will be the biggest of growing job cuts among the high-tech firms. Um, They have about 87,000 staff uh, and many thousands will be losing their jobs this week, according to sources who have been speaking to the Wall Street Journal. Now, that comes on the heels of other companies, a fintech firm Third Stripe, or Stripe rather, on November the 3rd, cutting 14% of its workforce. Twitter firing half its staff after Elon Musk told over, took over, although some of them had to be rehired, apparently, according to reports of the weekend, because they fired too many people. No one knew how to turn the lights on anymore. Um According to Crunchbase, 50,000 American tech personnel have been laid off so far this year because they're going through a really harsh downturn. We've seen that here in Canada as well. Now, it is a correction. Um, 
especially after those high-flying years for big tech through the early days of the pandemic. But what exactly is going on? Uh, joining me now with more on that is Ritesh Kotek. He is a cybersecurity and technology analyst. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. You know, Mark Zuckerberg was quoted as saying in a staff call, an employee call earlier this year, that uh, there are probably a bunch of people at the company who shouldn't be here. So I guess that was a warning sign. Uh, what's going on at Meta? Uh, so this is this is big. This is big. Um, here's the thing. When it comes to Meta, they've made a an investment or I guess a prediction that the metaverse, hence the name change, is the future. Well, it hasn't really lived up to expectations. I still believe that the meta, the metaverse and Web 3.0 and the Oculus and all the stuff that they've been talking about, that is the future of, of technology and society. But it just hasn't materialized into dollars and cents as fast as we thought it would um, with respect to adoption. Uh, there's also other elements of this as well. You have increased competition. You got economic uncertainty. And when you take all that stuff and you kind of put it together, it creates a really interesting and difficult situation for uh, meta and tech companies in general. And hence, what we're seeing is a lot of tech companies trying to, especially given the economic issues, trying to hold on to as much cash as possible and and uh, trying to cut where where they can. And then, and one of the places that they look is what jobs do we really need within our within our organization? Do we really need two of something or do we need three of something? And they're having that hard look and starting to make those cuts. And we're seeing that throughout. And And Meta um, is uh, seems like it's next. Yeah, at least according to the Wall Street Journal, it's going to be a huge, a huge cut, the biggest in its 18-year history. What is the issue here? Because I think, I think and you, you mentioned some of these other things that I think a lot of us don't really even understand. When, when Mark Zuckerberg talks about the metaverse, I don't think a lot of people even understand what it is he's talking about. I mean, hypothetically, sort of, you can sort of imagine what he's talking about, but you don't know how it relates to your Facebook page or your Instagram account, you know, right? Like, it's hard to square that circle. So how come they're not making... Where did they expect it to be by now? They thought this would be early adoption or quick adoption? I thought they thought that there would definitely be greater adoption, especially from the commercial enterprise space. Uh, recently, there was a, those Meta Connect, and and they talked about uh, which was kind of their big their big conference. And what they talked about there was kind of making these headsets into enterprise uh, devices. So think about it this way: you get hired by an organization. It's here's your laptop, here's your cell phone. Oh, and here's your headset, and your identity is kind of. Uh, embedded in all three, and you get all these uh, amazing uh, enterprise features and 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 security. But that's one element of it, right? This the other one is kind of what on earth is the metaverse, right? And mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people have thought about this as kind of this gimmicky avatars kind of floating around and and all that stuff. But it's a lot more than that. The way I think about it is Web 1.0, and we think about the first iteration or generation of the internet. It was about your ability to read. You could go on this computer. It made that really funny dial tone. I remember that. And uh, you're on this page and you can search for whatever you want to search for and get access to information. The second generation of the internet was your ability to write. Social media, you know, we all became content creators. Now we're living through the the third generation, which is Web 3.0, our ability to own. And that to me is the metaverse. Um, And there's a lot of elements of this, right? Uh, There is the ability for doctors to practice surgeries, the ability for people to own virtual real estate. We're seeing secondary markets in that, and we can get into that. It's really interesting stuff, but it's this idea that we can now own and we can own virtual, virtual space. And the adoption is happening. It's just not happening as fast as 
as probably Meta had predicted. Right. And shareholders, too. I mean, we're entering, we're in a tougher and much tougher economic environment than we were uh, five years ago. So I can imagine that that Meta's shareholders are also saying, you know, are also looking at them and saying, it's all fun, fun and dandy that you have a lot of people sitting around thinking up good ideas, but uh, you need, you, you can't be spending that much money. Yeah, 100%, right? Like this is kind of the post-pandemic tech boom, right? Or kind of a an, an evening out. Yes, there's more technology. We're using more. But kind of what we saw during the start of uh, March 2020 and kind of the investments that we saw in tech and how fast it had to scale up. Well, people went back to this hybrid model, you know, before it was all physical, then it went all virtual. And now we are living in this hybrid model where physical and virtual, they call, they're supposed to complement each other. Um, what, what, what does that mean? Well, you're going to use less tech. You're going to be more face-to-face. Add to that the economic pressure, the cash flow issues, uh, shareholders. Um, and a lot of these companies, including Meta, are trying to figure out how they can ride the storm and remain successful and still be able to invest in emerging tech. It's not established tech, it's emerging tech. Yeah, because they don't want to fall behind, obviously, and there's lots of competition. How about Twitter? I mean, we saw big layoffs at Twitter last week, and then over the weekend, we're reading that they had to bring people back because they had fired, they had gotten rid of too many people. So it's clearly not an exact science. They're still trying to figure it out, right? And I think that is kind of the big issue that that Twitter is going to face. We don't have exact numbers. It's estimated 50% were um, were laid off, uh, kind of that mass layoff that happened on Friday where people found out whether, you know, not so much through an email, but whether they could log in into their company portal or not, uh, which in itself was probably very stressful for individuals. But yeah, you know, Twitter... Twitter's kind of trying to figure out what does what does the future look like. Elon Musk paid forty four billion dollars for this estimated more than twelve billion dollars than twelve billion dollars more than he should have. Well, at some point you're going to have to figure out ways to um, to make it profitable, to make it viable, to be able to to be able to operate. Um, and that's kind of what they're I think what they're struggling with introducing new monetization models with Twitter, Twitter Blue, looking at micropayments, um, but also cutting staff globally. And I think we all probably read on Twitter uh, individuals that were laid off, kind of sharing their, um, sharing their, uh, you know, their their journey or their disappointment in some cases. But it, we knew it was coming. He said it was coming. Um, it started with him taking over and getting rid of top management, getting rid of 50%. And there's another issue to this, right? And that is when you get rid of that many people, you know, forget the morale issue, you lose a lot of knowledge that's kind of been built yeah. up in an organization as well. And and that kind of makes people skittish um, saying, well, wait a second, uh, you got rid of all this knowledge, Um how are we going to deal with some of these complex issues? Because the people that knew that how to deal with it, they, well, they, they've been walked out. So retouch back to Twitter. Do you think any of these monetize? It, it, first of all, it feels like it's been happen- it happened so fast. Like it didn't have to, it didn't have to be a full-scale overnight revolution. There could have been steps here, right? It feels like it's being done in a way that's both, I mean, you have to have a lot of faith in Elon Musk to watch any boss uh, put an organization into this kind of upheaval. Well, I think when he walked into Twitter headquarters with a sink uh, um, on on, on day one, like that was it for me. Right. Um, And kind of just keeping up with this whole this whole story has been a full time job. Uh, You know, is he buying it? Is he not buying it? How much is he paying? You know, potential uh, lawsuits to make sure that it actually it actually went uh, it actually went through. Um, So this is kind of expected, I guess. Uh, We knew there were going to be big, bold moves. Uh, I think uh, if you thought it was going to be business as as usual, uh, um, you know, I think you were grossly mistaken. Uh, And I don't think anyone did, right? I think everyone knew that 
there was going to be massive changes. There were going to be there. There was going to be layoffs. There's going to be new features that were going to be added. And there's going to be controversy with anything and everything um, that he does. That's just how he operates, and we've seen that with his other companies as uh, as well. So it shouldn't come as a surprise, but. You know what is the future of this platform? It is kind of as and and he's uh, he's 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 right, Elon, when he says this. This is the digital town square, and people do come here to and by here I mean Twitter to have conversations. There's nothing that's comparable. There's been competition. We've seen Parler and Truth Social, uh, but they've never been able to match up to the scale that that Twitter has, putting them in a very unique position. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if he can monetize it, though, because it was in some ways, and like many social media platforms, those who joined it early and have been on it for many, many years feel a certain sense of ownership over it. So if you come in and start to move things around or change the rules or, you know, this whole talk about giving people blue checks, you have to pay, in other words, or you basically disappear. I mean, that's how I read it, that if you don't pay to be on the platform eight bucks a month, you're essentially, your tweets will vanish. And I wonder what, I mean, you're right, there is no real alternative to it. But but I wonder if if it was done too quickly, like it's all been a bit of an upheaval. Anyway, we'll see. It's it's been interesting. Do you think it'll work? It's uh, look, here's the thing. There's no, uh, I don't, I, I don't see any direct um, alternate application that kind of fulfills the role that that Twitter has it's just it just doesn't exist so um if these conversations are going to continue which they will if if people are staying on the platform if governments and organizations stick to it um i think it is going to work or in the long term it will work yes short term pains and there'll be blimps but long term i think it's going to work when we look at the industry as a whole, then, uh, and we're seeing a lot more layoffs in Canada and a lot more layoffs in the States, uh, it's not just Meta and Twitter, it's everywhere, it's it's Lyft, it's other places. What do you see then for the future uh, of the tech industry? Because it feels like there's a, a correction going on, um, but there's been so much emphasis placed on, and it's even hard to define exactly what tech is when we talk about it this way, um, but there's been so much emphasis on tech job growth. Uh, within you know the knowledge economy, whether it be here in BC or anywhere else in Canada, people talk about it all the time. What exactly do you think is going on here with the future of the tech industry? Is it is it going through um, a real change? It is going through a change, um, but again, if we look at where the industry is today to where it was a few years ago, there has been there has been growth. We've seen incredible innovation. The steps, uh, the the stuff that's being developed, uh, especially coast to coast to coast. I think Canada is a fantastic. Uh, tech ecosystem. But right now, just given the economic realities, uh, the global economic realities, a lot of organizations are looking to be more lean and see, do we really need um, this many developers? Do we need this many people in marketing? Are there ways of automating some of these tasks and thus making positions uh redundant so yeah we are going to see a, we are going to see a correction but there's also another issue and the issue is uh startup funding and when we have companies that are actually cutting and investors that are looking for you know faster returns or great or greater returns we at that point it kind of makes me think okay um what about that pool of money that helps entrepreneurs who have ideas go from ideation to and to creating a a a mvp a minimal viable product to then creating something that can be commercialized because that requires funding it requires expertise and if we start seeing these types of cuts if we start seeing less funding in this space then 
innovation and us as a country, as an economy, is definitely going to suffer. So this does have a ripple effect from coast to coast to coast if we don't get it right. Because it feels like in many ways when it comes to some of this stuff, and although it is often consumer related, it feels like there is an arms race going on here. If you read about what the Chinese are doing, if you read about what other countries are doing when it comes to tech, uh, you can fall behind very quickly if you don't invest. And that's sort of what I feel like is going on right now. Not that it's going to happen because there's so much private investment in it, uh, but it feels like it's sort of an end of an era where it was sort of open spending, cheap money, lots of investment. Any good idea would get seed money into something far different. And we're going to have to figure out how to make it work because it is an arms race. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that is exactly what a lot of people are are saying as well. It's that much harder to raise funds. It's that much harder to commercialize these activities. Again, all the more reason that um, as a country, we, if, if, if entrepreneurship, if innovation is important to us, we, we got to create funds. We got to create more, even more important than money. We got to have supports. Um, if you have an idea, how do you get that idea to market? Because a lot of people do have these great ideas. And a lot of these big companies, they are they do invest in a lot a lot of these ideas as well. There is criticism that that a lot of these big tech U.S. companies were uh, end up buying Canadian IP and then it becomes American. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is these companies that do invest in in, in helping entrepreneurs and thus creating the next Amazon. I always said, why are we doing things on these big platforms like Amazon when we can kind of create the next Amazon in in Canada and put the right funding and help people that have the ideas and that entrepreneur spirit to. Uh, to get things done, because uh, we have an opportunity. I think whenever we see a downturn, there's always an opportunity to get things right and and then ride the wave up because um, it is cyclical. Yeah, there could be a Canadian out there ready to take on Elon Musk. Ritesh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. We're certainly not alone when it comes to this trait, but there are a few things that people in this country love to talk about more than the weather. And there are a few things that unite us as much as surviving bad weather. For example, it's been particularly cold in Alberta the past few days. It snowed in Victoria last night. You would have thought the whole place was about to fall apart. Uh, But there was snow on the ground when we woke up this morning in Victoria, which is a rare event indeed. Vancouver too, I believe, got some snow. Weather in many ways, is something that we share, and therefore we talk about it as if we shared it. So whether it was the moving or the slow-moving destruction of the Red River floods in Manitoba, the devastating beauty of the ice storm in Quebec, Ontario, and northern northern U.S. back in 1998, the power of Hurricane Juan in the Maritimes, or Fiona just last month for that matter, the speed of the Fort McMurray fires, Canada remembers where they were when some of these events took place. And if you were there, I'm sure these are events you will never forget. The one that stands out to me, of course, because I wasn't working at the time in journalism, I think I was studying journalism at the time, was the 1998 ice storm, uh, because I was living in Montreal at the time. Here's a reminder of what that was like. No matter how hard they try, hydro crews can't keep up. All day, the branches have been surrendering, knocking power lines dead. 2,000 workers from Quebec and another 1,000 from Ontario and the U.S. have been working around the clock. It is absolutely the worst we have seen. More than a million homes and businesses are in the dark and in the cold. That was Colleen Thorpe, an old Global News colleague of mine, uh, back in 1998 reporting on the ice storm. The devastation that that storm uh, 
left behind in Quebec and in many areas, just on the trees, on the landscape was was unbelievable. And as I was saying it off the top of the show, what was perhaps most surprising about it was just how beautiful it was. Uh, Montreal, it was so pretty through it all. And yet the sounds, you remember the sounds of trees breaking, of branches breaking, of things crumbling. It was an eerie, eerie, eerie storm. I remember it. I'll remember it forever. I think anyone who lived through it will remember it vividly. Well, my next guest was there for that one. Um, and he spent a quarter century covering the most notable weather events in this country, um, trying to provide both useful information about what was happening, but also context to the sudden and often dangerous shift in the natural world around us. Now, Chris St. Clair has compiled some of those most important weather events in recent Canadian history into a new book called Weather Permitting, 25 Years of Ice Storms, Hurricanes, Wildfires, and Extreme Climate Change in Canada. And the longtime Weather Network host joins me now. Chris, thank you so much. Oh, Ben, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You had so many stories. It was a fascinating read because I remember so many of them. I covered a few of them, not nearly Uh as many as you had, but I'd covered a few. What made you decide it was time to sit down and try and sort of think about all those, all the many weather events that you had seen over the years? Well, you know, when you talk about the beauty of the ice storm in Montreal, that, I mean, that was, um, that, that particular storm was pivotal in my mind in, in realizing that something bigger than just the weather was at play. And it, certainly that was climate change. And these were signs of it. But like you said, it was so beautiful the way, um, you know, it, it was, it was haunting at first, like on the report that you had, because the trees kept breaking and the branches and the power kept going out and the, and the freezing rain never stopped it just kept raining and when it wasn't raining it was drizzling and the ice kept growing on everything and then finally when it all stopped and the sun came out everything looked like it was made of glass and crystal and it was absolutely beautiful um so it was when i when i decided that i would leave the weather network uh, last year uh i was approached to to by um by my literary agent and said, you, let, we should, you should collect a lot of your thoughts and your notes and, and maybe think about putting this down in, in some form of a narrative about what, what, what has happened with our weather in the past quarter century and, and what's happening to it today and where is it going and, and what's it all about and how do we as human beings uh, make sense of it and, and somehow position ourselves so that as our climate changes, we'll be well-versed to weather that storm, as it were. Yeah, because one of the things I found really interesting about the book, having remembered a lot of uh, a lot of the events just from either covering them or reading about them or seeing them on TV, as one does, was um, some of the explanations you provide. And I always thought that was very, I, you know, I honestly, having grown up in Montreal, I'm ashamed to admit I didn't know what the definition of a blizzard was until I read yeah. your book. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you learned from it. You know, when I started working at the Weather Night, I was in, uh, it was, I, my, my first shift was on the eve of the referendum in 1995. Right. Uh, and, and I was coming in to do my work, and, and I was thinking about um, our country as I, as I drove. I live in Kingston, so it's 300 kilometers to Montreal. So I was driving um, that drive that weekend, and there were banners hung on the highway um, urging Quebec to stay uh, as part of the union and, and our country. Uh, and, and it got me thinking about our country and what connects us and what keeps us together. And, and it's, it's the thing that we, we enjoy but don't thoroughly understand, which is the weather. And I decided at that point that the way I would do my weather presentations, my style would be I would speak for the weather and, and make sure that every time 
you came to get a forecast, you would learn something about the weather. Why is it windy today? And so I always enjoyed that. That was kind of my signature, I think, and and, um, and a lot of people picked up on it, and I'm glad they did. How did you go about selecting? Um, because when I looked through it, some of the, some of the some of the weather events are ones that everyone will recognize. They're ones that were simply, you know, they were huge. There were other ones that were lesser so, though. There were ones that were more, I think, personal uh, for you. I'm thinking of like the, the bridge of PEI was, was one that felt felt like a more of a just, it, it'd been something, been something that really stood out to you both as a reporter, but also there was something special about the way the story was told. It was, you know, the th- the thing, the PEI story is is really interesting uh, because the bridge uh, to Prince Edward Island uh, represents um, something. I mean, when, to put that bridge in, they actually had a referendum in Prince Edward Island uh, on whether or not they wanted to actually be attached to the mainland by this fixed link, or if they wanted to continue with ferry service. And and I love history; it's what I studied at university. Uh, and when you start to take a look at the history of Prince Edward Island and how people got goods and services back and forth to the island 150 years ago, all, all around, like year-round, um, in that very harsh Atlantic winter climate. It, it became a, a really fascinating study, and I happened to be there for one particularly powerful blizzard. And even though we had come so far with our technology, and, and I think this is kind of interesting, uh, you still couldn't get to the island because the weather had closed down this this weatherproof bridge that had only been closed for that length of time, a couple of times since it was first constructed. So it was that story was kind of personal that way, um, but it was about um, you know the weather is about all of us and and the temerity that we have to uh, withstand what nature throws at us and as Canadians no matter where we're from originally or if we've lived here for generations, um, we, we hold it as sort of a badge of honor that, that this is our weather and, and we thrive in it. Yeah, there was a moment in that uh, Prince Edward Island story where you wander into a Tim Hortons and find a bunch of people delayed on their flights to nicer climbs uh, by this awful storm that's closed the Confederation Bridge. And there's that there's that idea that is so Canadian that somehow really bad weather brings out the best in us. It, it does. I mean, those people were all trying to get to their flight in Moncton, and, and they weren't going to make it. The bridge was not going to open. They weren't going to be in the Dominican Republic with uh, fancy drinks. And But they were resigned to, it's well, that's what happens here. And yes, they're disappointed. But, you know, they had beautiful beaches there that would they'd be able to swim at in four months, and they would go on their holiday next year. But it's, it, And, and in, for Maritimers, and I'm a Maritimer, uh, that's the way it goes there. They, they really roll with it. My, one of my favorite things is uh, in Newfoundland, um, my grandmother's from Newfoundland, and I talk about it in the story, um, uh, The Rock, in the book. Um, and Newfoundlanders, every time I go there, uh, they will say, to, and you might be there covering a pretty significant storm, but they will always say, as Newfoundlanders do, well, you should have been here for the last one. Uh, and and that's just kind of the way they are. It's, it's just they are very much accepting of it. And if you particularly are from away, uh, they'd like you to know that the weather's been worse than the weather you're seeing right now. Yeah, yeah, it'll be bad tomorrow, but you should have been here in '38. You know that was yeah. always the uh, yeah. yeah. It's it's uh, that's I mean that was always the, the the common refrain, isn't it, from from other generations about just how much worse it was. But uh, there is, there are there are so many. One of the things, of course, being a former TV reporter myself, is that that moment where you think, oh, we got to be there. And you do yeah. touch on that a lot in the book too, how a lot of those moments where we need to be there for this story because it's going to be something 
um, it's going to be different. And and it's it's funny if you read just a a chronology of them, each one of them is obvious. But I imagine through the many days and weeks of reporting, um, you know, what made those ones? You must have just after a while known that something was going to be big. You know, um, I worked with a great editor at Simon and Schuster, um, Jeannie Woon, and and and, and Simon and Schuster have been terrific to work with on this project. Um, and because we had a goal for how, how how big the book would be and what's a good size for this book, and and I overwrote it because there were so many stories that uh, we wanted to tell, so we had to throw a lot of them out. So perhaps there'll be another book. But for this one, we wanted to try to condense it down to 12 good stories that were representative of the whole country and of, of all different seasons. So that was kind of the thinking on, on the stories that we did. But, um, yeah, when, when you go to, I mean, you've had to go, you know, you say, we, we need to be this for, there for this as a reporter. You've done it so many times in your career. Um, and, and it is, uh, it's, I loved going out in the field. Uh, being a person who spent most of my time working in the studio, there there was a real um, sense of ad- adventure and and fun about it uh, because you know you would arrive and and you would have to uh, do your research along the way and 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 plan where you needed to be so that you would be in the best position to tell the story and and to find the people that you would need to be a part of your story. So I I really enjoyed that process and 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 speaking with you know. Canadians across the country and and getting their take on and on what this was all about is a, a hugely fulfilling part of my career. It is it is chaos, really. You hear the emergency sirens going, but I need to show you. It, it's not just on the border. This is Fort McMurray burning this afternoon, Donna. Uh, we're right in the thick of it. This is Highway 63, the main corridor, and we're in downtown. We're not far from a fire station, to be honest, and the hospital. But uh, we also saw up the way, this is Highway 63, the fire seems to be burning across the highway. The Fort McMurray fire, the beast, May of 2016, Global News report there. Um, I'm speaking with Chris St. Clair, longtime Weather Network host, now author of the just-released Weather Permitting. Reading through the book, uh, Chris, you know, there's stories you can tell jump off the page for the writer. And one couldn't help but think that for you, that story was Fort McMurray. Yeah, I, I think that in my career that was, it was a story that changed me uh, as as a person uh, and, and changed the way I thought about uh, people uh, because I had never witnessed uh, in my life such generosity firsthand and and how easy it was for people to help other people and how it, it, it happened without even uh, an ask. It, it was an unbelievable event, not just for Fort McMurrayites and Albertans, but for Canadians as a whole. There was a whole coming together over this. Yeah, watching it, I mean, I was out here on Vancouver Island and the fundraising, and of course, you know, lots of different parts of the country have connections to Fort McMurray, right? Connections that you don't always recognize. Newfoundland has an incredible connection to Fort McMurray, but a lot of the Maritimes does, Mm -hmm. the West Coast does. And you just saw it all coalesce around what was really perhaps one of the most horrific natural disasters that we had seen, um, in my memory at least. And, and told in real time on social media, I think that's where social media came into its own in in such a way in, in our business. I mean, our, the, the broadcast and, and particularly the news gathering um, business has changed so much 
in the past uh, 10 years. Um, and, and you know this from your work, uh, you know, there was a time to cover a news story. You had to have a satellite truck um, and, and, it w- and, and, and that's how you had to do it. And um, along came this device called the Digero, which was a suitcase sized uh, thing that you would c- connect your camera to it and it would use a cell phone signal. Uh, and that enabled smaller broadcasters like the Weather Network to become very mobile and, and start to cover these weather events, which is what we did. And, and, and interestingly now, um, some 10, 12 years after the, that device came along, and now it's just an app on your phone. And anybody in the world who has a social media account can become a citizen reporter. Um, but with Fort McMurray, that mass exodus was captured on, on Twitter and Instagram and, and shared instantly with so many people. And, 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 and suddenly it became, uh, even before, you know, before the news could make it a big event, it became a big event. And that was really interesting about how that um how that particular uh, tragedy uh, i think came to the to the national forefront would you agree yeah, absolutely I mean, yeah absolutely because you could it was one of the first ones i remember in canadian history where you could follow it almost as if you were there even if you weren't so you felt it yeah. felt very intimate even though you weren't actually and and yet the way you describe it clearly to be there those moments you describe meeting people, the food, the way people helped each other out was even more poignant than what you watched in terms of just, the, you know, the fleeing and, and you saw it on TV, but to be there was one was completely different. Clearly, it, it was it was such a different feeling. We stayed. I mean, when you if you've been to Fort McMurray, once you drive out of Fort McMurray to, you know, to to get to Edmonton, the next town you come to is almost 100 kilometers away. And it's just a little place called uh, Wandering River. And there's uh, two motels and an A&W and, and, and a gas station and that's it and everybody would stop there when fort mcmurray evacuated um about 60 percent of the population went out on 63 that that two-lane highway uh, or four-lane highway uh, to fort mcmurray but about 20 30 percent of the population went north to fort mackey and the camps to the north and when they finally got the fire somewhat contained uh Within the city limits, they were they were able to draw those people down in convoys, and so a couple of days after the mass exodus, these people started coming through Wandering River, and we were there to talk to them on the way out, and it became this very intimate conversation with people uh, who who just wanted to let you know they they had left their cell phones behind and left with the clothes on their back, and they wanted to connect uh, w- with their loved ones to let them know they were okay and they were going to make the drive back to Nova Scotia, and they didn't know what they were going to do. They didn't. And and, and nobody really knew when they could go back home and, and what would be left of their home. And I think those stories, and it was it was neat to be in the media because there was nothing more to talk about other than those stories uh, for several days. And, and it was this great moment of connection with so many people. And, and I write about it in the book, uh, yeah. just the, the giving Chris, I'm just going to, we'll come right back to this. Uh, but there's a story behind it. There's a reason you chose all these stories. And, and there's a broader message you were hoping to share as well about all these events and what unites them, not just how Canadians have lived through them. And with very few deaths, by the way, which I was always uh, encouraged to see through those books, that there has been tragedy, but not loss of life, not excessive loss of life. Um, but yeah. there's a message here. Yeah. There- there is, there is. Um, and, and, and it's a very interesting message, and it's one that's been very hard for us to all grapple with, and, and it's climate change. It's the crisis that we find ourselves in now. Um, 
that that has been talked about, you know, for a long, long time. David Suzuki's been talking about it since the mid-70s. Climate scientists have known about it um, for nearly 50 years, uh, 60 years now, that, that they've been aware that this would happen. I mean, if you go back to the first talk about climate change, it goes back 100 years. Our climate has always changed. Uh, it's just that it is changing at a rapid rate, and, and we have a lot to do with it. And, and it's getting that message out, which has been very difficult for everybody in the media, uh, to do and and so I, I I think that things are happening at such a rate now, and and people have talked about it long enough that there is that we understand it's happening and we're starting to do things about it. Yeah, because you do end on an optimistic note, uh, despite all that you've seen. There is something about both the destruction, but also um, the way that the spirit that you saw that you witnessed through that destruction that gave you hope as well in the book. I, I think that 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 you know when when we we look at the world that we live in today and 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 humans are at their best when we have um, direct contact with each other and unfortunately in the world that we live in we're we, we you know we do things by likes and 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 work social media so hard uh, and it doesn't allow us the time to have those connections one on one with individuals and I think something's lacking when that happens and fortunately and unfortunately at the same time, when we run into these crises uh, with storms and disasters, um, we're forced to have this one-on-one contact. And when we do have this, we help each other. And in helping each other, we make each other stronger. And when, and when people have those actions together, they work well together, and they, and they find solutions to common problems, and they find them really quickly. We become um, more resourceful than we think we are. And I think that that's the positive in this, in, the, in that we will find our way through it. And, and things will be put in front of us that will make us make our decisions uh, much more rapidly than we thought we could. Yeah, because some of the stories you tell, just some of the, the incidents where you where people help each other out are remarkable. I mean, they're remarkable. They're clearly not the kinds of things you see in daily life, and you were privy to some remarkable moments of humanity. And I think back to Fort Mac, but there are many other examples in the book of people helping people out. People love to help other people out. It, 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 in, in our, it's in our DNA um, to want to feel good, and, and nothing makes you feel better than when you lift somebody else up. Um, you know, and I've seen it in, in, in places where there's great disparities uh, in, in wealth, and, and yet people you know, will help each other. Um, Fort McMurray was the most glaring example of it for me, but even, you know, I've been in hurricanes in, in Newfoundland where, where they're, they're not a big deal for them. And, and Newfoundlanders were the people that helped everybody um, who was flying on 9-11. Um, so they have this spirit of helping, but they help each other too. Um, you know, a tree falls down and all the neighbors will come and, and move the tree. It's just, it's in the spirit of them, but it's in the spirit of all of us. Yeah, part of living in uh, in a hostile climate, so to speak. Uh, this is always when you when you put the final, you know, the the final period in a book. I suppose you want people to walk away thinking about something. What would you like people to walk away thinking about when they've read Weather Permitting? Sure, I, I would like them people to to realize, and we all do realize that these these events are happening more frequently, and climate change is real, um, and there are solutions. They're not as hard as we think they are. We just need to to be uh, a little more giving towards each other and willing to do those things. But um, you know, you can't stop Mother Nature. Our 
our planet and our ecosystem is a fragile but wonderfully massive thing that is much bigger than all of us. Yeah, and you've certainly seen it at its um, at its most violent, right? Which is always a reminder. And and the fact that you're right, just reading through the book, the frequency that these storms, th- these odd weather events happen, these extreme weather events, we could call them, uh, certainly can't be ignored. No, it, it certainly can't. You know, and for the longest, and I'll just take one one minute to make this one little point. You know, people say, well. Um, meteorologists know about, uh, you know, meteorologists have for a long time have been not, not wanting to say any particular event, a singular event, was climate change. And climatologists who study climate over long periods of time um, link all those events together. And, and as journalists, um, I, the trouble that we ran into in explaining climate change for so many years was uh, this this cause and effect. And, and, and I think it's been pretty clearly illustrated now that the cause and effect is there. Um, and it was it was the difficulty that we had in presenting this story, which is a very difficult story to present. But I think people get it now and and totally understand what's at stake. Well, Chris St. Clair, I really appreciate your time tonight. Congratulations on putting it all down on paper. I know it's hard to leave some of uh, some of it on the editing room floor, as we well know. And yeah, thanks thanks so much for your time tonight. It's been fascinating. Uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. 